Those wonderful singers just sang a magnificent prayer uh, to Almighty God because they, they believe in Him. Uh, there are, are some folks who do not, do not, you know this, do not believe in the existence uh, of God. Uh, those would be called atheists. Uh, they don't believe in theos, the Greek name for God. They don't believe in a personal God. Atheists. Uh, there are others who would say they believe in God, but they have a very interesting notion of what God is like. They, uh, they identify God with creation and thus don't make too much of a distinction between creator and creation. They could be called pantheists. They too, they don't believe in a personal creator God. They think creation is God. You know, those would be the Mother Earth folks. Those would be folks who are uh, not seeking to be merely good stewards of the environment, but ones who, in effect, are worshiping the environment. So they're not atheists. They're pantheists. They have a very, however, impersonal notion of who God is. And then there's another category of people. We could call them theists. You are theists, folks who believe in God, a personal God who is the creator and who spoke all things into existence and is apart from that which he created. He is superior to it, theists. But amongst theists, uh, it seems to me, I'm, I'm simplifying a little bit, but it seems to me there are two categories of response amongst theists to God. Uh, one group of theists are willing to accept God's offer. Uh, and the other group of theists, uh, instead of that, have, um, have made a counteroffer to God. Now, what is it that God has offered? Something we stand in need of, forgiveness. So one group believes God's offer of forgiveness is based on his grace through our faith in the shed blood of God's only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus. And they say, gladly, O God, we accept your offer, which is of forgiveness. But the other group of theists say, wow, that's quite a generous offer. Thank you, but no thank you. And in effect, they say, we would like to counter your offer with an offer of our own. And so instead of being beholding to you for your forgiveness, we would rather choose to live by certain standards of our own creation by which we will try to persuade you that we don't stand in need of forgiveness because we possess a righteousness of our own. Look, we're living well. We're doing good things. Many religious people are in this category. You might find that Unusual for a minister to say, but I hope you know there's a difference between knowing Creator God personally and simply being a, an adherent of a religious system. All religions essentially are a counteroffer. Did you know that? 
I'm painting with quite a broad brush now, but I think this is what religions have in common. Religions are a counter-offer. Religions say, here are a list of rules, do's and don'ts, practices and traditions. They may not be bad at all, but it's a counter-offer. And religious traditions and rules and creeds and all the rest and things you have to do and hoops you have to jump through are in essence a way of saying, God, if we do these things, we think we will be presenting to you a sufficient self-righteousness, that we don't need your righteousness to be imputed to our account. We could do it ourselves, you see. So you have two really uh, contrasting and competing systems. One, in essence, is a done-for-you payment for your sin. But the other, here's the counter-offer, the other is a do-it-yourself payment for sin. Those are the only two systems. There are no other options. So I ask you this, which system are you seeking to rest in? Which one do you think has most potential to give rest for your soul? Is it the one whereby you accept God's gracious offer of forgiveness? You don't presume to add to it in any way. There's nothing more you can do but receive this inexpressible gift and you rest in it. Or are you someone seeking, perhaps, deceptively to fool yourself into thinking you can find your place of rest before Almighty God by simply uh, invoking your own self-righteousness or religiosity? Is that your counteroffer to God? Now, I want to tell you something. It is possible uh, for one to uh, acknowledge God's offer of freely given gracious forgiveness of sin. It's possible for one not only to acknowledge it, but even to identify with it in some fashion. It's even possible for that person to be part of an assembly of those who, as a core value, accept God's offer of forgiveness. It's possible for one to implant themselves in that assembly. It's possible even for that one to profess to have accepted God's offer. It's possible for all those things to be true, and yet that person remain unsaved. It's possible. The words are right. The affiliation is right. The profession of one's lips is right. The understanding is right. And yet, somehow, God's offer doesn't seem to have taken root, doesn't seem to have transformed, doesn't seem to have made a difference. There seems to be the absence of any evidence of one being indwelt by God himself. No life change whatsoever. Well, the writer of Hebrews, that's the book we're looking at, is writing to an assembly of people like that, only they're Jewish people. He is writing, the writer of Hebrews is writing to Hebrews, hence the name. And he's addressing them as if they know of and have accepted God's offer of forgiveness. They acknowledge there's one God. He's personal. He's a creator. He's made an offer of, uh, of forgiveness, and they've accepted it. He's writing to them in those terms, but he knows. Not all have. He knows it's a mixed bag. He knows that though they're all Jewish, some have truly believed in 
Jesus, Messiah, but others have not. They maybe have called upon his name. They have the right words. They're regular attenders in the congregation of those who believe, but they haven't themselves believed. And what's happening to these Jewish people is now they're coming under fire. Their own kinsmen are causing them a lot of unrest because they have stated that they have found their rest in Yeshua, in Jesus. And their own Jewish kinsmen are really causing them a measure of unrest and unsettledness for saying, we have not found our rest in the traditions of, the faith, of our faith. We haven't found rest in Judaism. We have found rest in Messiah Jesus. Well, their kinsmen have really begun to put a lot of pressure on them. They're persecuting them. They're making it very difficult for them. And what is happening is a number of them are coming dangerously close to turning their backs on Jesus and going back to the counteroffer, their own religion, which is Judaism. See, Judaism is a counteroffer which said, Oh God, thank you for being willing to forgive us, but we don't need your favor that way. We could win your favor by doing the laws. Judaism will do the laws. We could pull it off. We don't need you. We don't need to be saved from sin, for we don't really possess it in sufficient quantity that we need your righteousness. We have a righteousness of our own. And so the writer of Hebrews is writing to them. He's writing to these folks. And he's writing to them words of warning. He is writing in this book of Hebrews, in this letter of better, he is writing of a rest that is better than any other rest. And he wants some in this assembly, this mixed assembly, to be so warned of the dangers of turning their back on Jesus and back to the old religion of man-made human tradition. He's going to warn them, don't do it. And this is what he does in Hebrews chapter 4. Take a look. Hebrews chapter 4. Here's how verse 1 begins. Therefore, let us fear. It's serious. Let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Do not fear if you're a Christian. This is not for you. Don't worry about it. This is for those who have all the externalities of being born again, but whose heart has not been affected by the Savior at all. These are folks who have professed Christ, but do not possess Christ. These are folks, I, I don't like this, but I have to say it, who are part of churches all across America. They participate perhaps with more regularity than anybody else. They sing songs, maybe even contribute financially, possibly even go on missions trips, but have never, ever been truly redeemed by the Redeemer. This was brought home to me in a stark way. I was a missionary in England millions of years ago, and I was part of a, an, 
uh, Church of England. That's where I centered my ministry from in this small British village, Church of England. And I sat there. It was built in the 12th century. We would worship. It was glorious. And the person playing the pipe organ, oh my God. Goodness, I'd never heard such an instrument played so beautifully. It would just usher you into the very presence of God. And I went to the rector of the church, pastor, rector of the church. His name was Roy. I said, Roy, what a magnificent spiritual gift God has given that choice vessel to pray, uh, to play so beautifully and lead us in such magnificent songs. And the rector said to me, well, you could pray for him because he does not know the Lord. He's unsaved and not interested. He said he only does this, as is often the case in England, as an art form. He simply goes from place to place for hire. It's an art form. <gasps> and I thought to myself, wow, you cannot judge a book by its cover. You have to look for uh, more striking evidences of transformation. And one of them, uh, the writer of Hebrews is saying, is your staying power. The fact that you do not turn your back on the Lord Jesus, even when the world is coming against you. The fact is that when in the midst of persecution and suffering, even prejudice for your adherence to the faith, you stay firm. That is an evidence of God's holding power in your life. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, my goodness, if you drift back into Judaism, you have just betrayed. You have only professed Christ but you've never been possessed by him. If so, you would still be with us. You see, so that's what's, that's what's kind of going on here. And so he goes on to say, the writer does here in verse 2, for indeed we have had good news. What's another word for good news? Yeah, gospel. That's, we've had good news preached to us just as they also. Who's the they? Ancient Israelites. He's speaking to Jews, and he's using, as an illustration, uh, he's using information about their ancestors, other Jews, set free from bondage in Egypt, and here's the good news they received. I will deliver you and bring you into a place of promise. I'll bring you into a place of rest. That's good news. And so it says here, they had good news preached to them also, but the word they heard didn't profit them. Why? Because it wasn't united by faith in those who heard. And what happened to an entire generation of those Hebrews? They did not come into their rest, did they? They died prior to entering their place of promise. Don't you see? They saw the miracles of God. They heard the word of God. They had good news preached to them. But all that information wasn't combined with faith. And so it appears that hearing of God's offer is not enough. The ancient Israelites heard of it, but the word they heard didn't profit them because it wasn't united by faith in those who heard. Now the writer identifies a contrasting group in the same assembly, uh, consisting of those who have not only heard of God's offer, but have heard and believed. Here it is, verse 3. For we, we who have believed Enter that rest, just as he has said. And now here's a quotation from Psalm 95. 
just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they, so you have two groups, you have the we, we who have believed, contrasted with the second group, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Folks, there's only two groups of people on planet Earth, even down to this very day, the we and the they. I want to ask you a question which you simply need to answer for yourself. Which group do you put yourself in? I don't mean to offend anybody, but you're either one of the we or one of the they. That's it. There's no middle ground. I know we're dividing racially, economically, in terms of gender, socioeconomic, all that other kind of stuff. Those are just human distinctions. The one, the distinction between people that really is of eternal consequence is this. Are you one of the we? We who have believed, or are you one of the they? And the they, strong words, are those who are objects of God's wrath, and they fail ever to enter into God's rest. Doesn't matter how righteous, self-righteous they are. Doesn't matter how religious they are. I'm told that Americans are becoming more religious than at any time in human history. But you know, religion is a counteroffer. Religion says, I want to trump your offer with one of my own. I don't want to be beholden to your grace. There's no possibility of human pride in it. I want to retain my own self of righteousness and boast in my own pride. I want to adhere to a system that gives me standards by which I could live, and that way I can arrogantly uh, foist myself above those who don't practice the same religious system. Are you one of the we, or are you one of the they? God says of the they, they shall not enter my my rest. My rest, God says. What does that mean? Does God get tired? It says God, it says my rest. Does he get fatigued? Does he need a rest? Look at verse 4. For he has said somewhere, it's actually Genesis. He has said in Genesis concerning the seventh day, And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. How many days did it take him to create? Six. And on the seventh, it says he rested. Does it mean the activity on the first six days exhausted him? Did he go, oy vey, I need a break? (laughs) No. That's not what it means when we talk about God's rest. It doesn't mean he was fatigued. It means he was finished. He finished the work of creation. Do you know he never has had to go back to it? He completed the work of creation, the the world. He created the world and all that is in it in six days. He sustains it for sure, but he never had to go back to that creative activity because it is full, it is complete, and that is the symbol of what he wants for us. He wants all works, all self-efforts on our part. He wants us to be finished with it, done with it, because he has provided for us a complete Sabbath rest, the likes of which he experienced after six days of physical creation. This is God's rest. We're invited to part. Anticipated. God wants us to rest completely from the burden of trying to be okay with him through our own self-righteousness or religious activity. He wants us to simply accept his offer. Uh, come to me, all who are weary 
and heavy laden. I, rest is caught up in a relationship with a person, not a religious system. I will give you rest. God wants us to be finished and complete without, with any show of, of, uh, 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 of, of righteousness. The most ungodly people, interesting to me, participate in humanitarian causes. Why? Because it's their counteroffer. While they're sleeping around or doing this or doing that, totally outside of God's will. They say, but at least we're doing this. You know what it is? It's Genesis 3. It's an apron of leaves. It's covering up for human nakedness in our own effort. Apron of leaves, Genesis 3. That's the first religion. That's a counteroffer. That's someone refusing to admit they are naked and vulnerable before Almighty God and need to be clothed by His grace. Instead, that's someone who's saying, you know what? Here's my counteroffer. How about if I make an apron of leaves? Two systems, folks. Which is it? You are working for your own salvation or you are accepting the finished work of Almighty God through the substitutionary death of His Son, Jesus Christ, on your behalf. There's no middle ground. Which is it for you? If you're truly converted from deception to truth, you are resting from all self-effort from all self-righteousness, from all so-called good works. Instead, you're living a life in which you constantly thank and praise God for His finished work of salvation, forgiveness, redemption, regeneration offered to you by His grace contingent on your faith. Now, if you haven't made that decision, good news about good news, the promise of it still remains. Look at verse 7. He again fixes a certain day today, saying, through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, and here's another quotation from Psalm 95 written by David, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. So get this. Ancient Israel in the wilderness had good news and refused it. Hundreds of years later, centuries, David wrote Psalm 95, reflecting the words of God in it. David wrote, hundreds of years after the wilderness wanderings, there's still Jewish people, Gentile people, there's still the possibility, a promise still remains for you to accept God's offer of forgiveness. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. And even a longer period of time after David wrote, the words still hold true, folks, Today, tonight, now, right now, if you hear his voice, I prayed before. Oh, God, let someone hear your voice. No, 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 not mine. I don't have power to save. Oh, God, let someone hear your voice. It's not with the ear. These words are with you with your ear. No, no, no. It has to be different. I pray, oh God, in the power of your spirit, let someone hear your voice on the inside with their heart. Today, if you hear his voice, 
don't harden your heart. So I pray, oh God, it's an assembly. It's mixed. Not everyone here is one of the we. Some are still part of the they. <gasps> they're in danger. They maybe have deceived themselves into thinking they're one of the we, but there's insufficient evidence of change in their life for them to come to that conclusion. Therefore, oh God, today, let that one, two, three more hear your voice, not harden their hearts, and be saved. You know, this opportunity for rest, better than all others, God's rest remains, but not indefinitely. Did you know that? God limits the time of opportunity to get in on his rest to two events, whichever comes first, ends the opportunity. One is you're dying, your death. That's it. That's it. But the second is the return of the life giver. The giver of rest, the Lord Jesus. He's coming again. So whichever comes first seals your eternal destiny. So, 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 so the only thing you can be sure of, you cannot be sure of tomorrow, can you? Is today. Today is the only opportunity. Oh, I pray. Oh, God. Let someone hear your voice tonight and be converted. Truly converted to you. Otherwise, you're looking for rest. We all need it but in the wrong places. Just as is indicated in the next verse, 8. For if Joshua had given... Can you see all this Old Testament stuff that's being used? That's because the audience is Jewish. So the writer is speaking about David and now Joshua. If Joshua had given them rest, he wouldn't have... God would not have spoken of another day of rest after that. What did Joshua would do? When Moses' time was over, God used Joshua to lead the people into the land of Canaan, the promised land. But if that was the ultimate rest they needed, then God would not have offered one subsequent to it. So what is the rest Joshua gave them? Material, earthly, temporal, political. Folks, participate in the political process. But if you think you're going to find rest for your souls in a particular candidate of any stripe, of any value system, of any philosophical bent, of any political party, what? That's not God's rest. That's just temporal rest. That's just earthly rest. That's just the same kind of rest that Joshua offered. If that's all there was, things would have ended with Joshua. Jesus would not have had to come, suffer, die, and offer Rest from our labors to be right with God. That's the rest we really, really need. So there remains in verse 9 a Sabbath rest for the people of God. That's the only time in the entire Bible that phrase is used. Sabbath rest. Sabbath rest. You heard of the Sabbath, right? Do you know which commandment it is? Thou shalt keep the Sabbath. You know what number? Number four, it's the fourth commandment. It's in the Bible, right? So how come we don't keep the Sabbath? When are we going to meet next? When is our next assembly day? It's Sunday, not Saturday, right? What's the deal? Why don't we keep the Sabbath? We do. Hear me out. When we rest in the finished work of salvation... Provided by the Lord Jesus, we have indeed entered into Sabbath rest. We keep the Sabbath when we let the 
Lord of the Sabbath, keep us. That is the purpose of Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath of old was a day. I know that. Saturday. It was a day. It was a day of rest. But it wasn't meant to just be a day. It was a day, a foreshadowing, pointing forward not to a day, but to a new reality characterized by Sabbath rest. The day indicated in the fourth commandment introduced in the Old Testament, the day is just a shadow of a more substantive reality, and the more substantive reality is not a day of rest. It's a life begun now and continuing on into eternity in which we have accepted God's offer, rest on His merits, His righteousness, and do not seek to labor to establish our own. This new reality is exactly what Paul had in mind when he wrote this to the Colossians. I'll read it to you in chapter 2. It's a very key passage. Colossians 2 verses 16 and 17. Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon, get this, or a Sabbath day. Let no one Act as your judge with regard to a Sabbath day. Why? These things are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. When you find the substance, the shadow has served its purpose. When the Sabbath day in the Old Testament speaks to you of a rest in Christ Jesus. You no longer live for a day of rest. It's an eternity of resting in the arms of the Savior who has saved you from the necessity of having to work to earn salvation because Jesus has completed the work for you. The Sabbath is a shadow. The substance is Christ Jesus. Because of what he has done for us, because of his finished work on the cross, we can enter the new reality of Sabbath rest. Rest from self-effort to be right with God. You see verse 10, for the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, just as God did from his. You see, it has nothing to do with the day. It's a relationship with the one who gives rest. Therefore, verse 11 let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. Be diligent. Maybe your Bible says labor to enter rest. Isn't that ironic? It's almost like a contradiction in terms. Work hard at resting. Why does it say that? Because our inclination is to work for our salvation. So we could have uh, uh, boasting points, bragging points. We can brag about our righteousness. So we have to work really, really, really hard at accepting God's offer, not offering a counteroffer of our own show of self-righteousness or religiosity, and just singing, Jesus paid it all. That's it. No additions, no subtractions. We really have to work at that. And by the way, if you're just someone in an assembly of those who've accepted God's offer, but you in fact have not, 
I need to tell you something that's going to happen. Verse 12, you can't hide. See, for the word of God is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You can't try to hide behind a facade of religion, a facade of self-righteousness, because the very word of God can cut right through it and reveal you to be who you are. You see, there's no, verse 13, there's no creature hidden from his sight. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. All facades will be pulled back. Only our true nature will be evident. you got to do something about that. So do I. We're in trouble. I can fool other people about my true nature. So could you. I could do a little bit of good thing here, a little bit of good thing there. You know, I can do all kinds. I mean, every day we're reading about some scandalous thing about someone who, look, I don't want to, I am praying for John Edwards. Please don't misunderstand. But for God's, you know, John Edwards, one time a vice presidential candidate, he's on trial now, a mistress, a pregnancy, a misappropriation of funds. It's just terrible. It's just horrible. His wife passed away. He had a relationship with a lady while the wife was dying of cancer and all this kind of stuff. And all along, if you look at John Edwards, my goodness, he looks like a choir boy, does he not? Did you see his hair? He's like unbelievably beautiful hair. And I guess if you paid 500 bucks for a haircut, yours would look a little better too. But anyway, I mean, I mean, pleasant and, you know, a, a good guy, a church-going guy and all the rest. And all these things are going on behind the scenes. It's shocking. It's scandalous. But, 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 but didn't take God by surprise. See, the Word of God is sharper. It's piercing. He cuts through all the masks, the haircuts, the, 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 you know, you can dress up all that evil stuff. But God cuts through all of that kind of stuff. He's not just saying, I'm a Baptist. I go to church. I was raised in the church. You know, I went to vacation. But I didn't. All this stuff John Edwards said he did. I'm not mocking him. Don't mistake understand i'm just trying to say he fooled a lot of us people were ready to vote for that particular ticket he was one bullet away from being president of the united states for crying out loud if that uh, president vice presidential candidate was was elected and then we were all shocked oh my goodness why because we said he looks like such a good guy he seemed like such a good he you see we can't tell we can't we don't know these things but god does nobody is that's why the writer of Hebrews is saying, check yourself out before it's, before it's too late. And you know something? God's offer is so good. Look, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, the high priest in the old dispensation, Aaron, uh, they pa- he passed through the curtains in the Holy of Holies once a year, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, but this high priest passed through the heavens. You know what he did? He went to where God lives. This is telling us of the access this high priest has to the Father. Oh my goodness. The most intimate of access a person could have, this Jesus, Son of God, has therefore, let's hold fast our confession. Come on, I confess. Jesus is my Savior. I didn't contribute to my salvation. I don't have anything to offer God except my own sin, overwhelming sin. And Jesus forgave me, made me clean, washed me. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Oh, I mean, that's what do we boast in? We boast in the cross, don't we? 
of Jesus Christ. Hold fast to that. You know, he's not only great. He's not only so great that he's equal to the Father. He's also good. Look, verse 15. We don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses. Are you kidding? We have one who's been tempted in all things, yet without sin. He knows the horrendous experience of refusing uh, uh, a fighting temptation. He knows it uh, much more than we do because he never gave into it. We just give into it and get it over with. He never gave into it, which means he never sinned, which, me- which means he-, he never had a need to atone for his own sin, which means he could spend all his time atoning for ours. Jesus paid it all. You see? Therefore, closing verse, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. If you reject God's offer and come up with a counter offer of your own, I'm afraid it isn't the throne of grace. It's throne of judgment. No, no. But for those who've accepted God's offer, let's draw near. It's the throne of grace. Come to it. Why? You know what you'll get? Mercy, grace to help in time of need. Why would any rational person resist, reject this kind of grace? It's what I said earlier, because then we have nothing to brag about. Do we have nothing to brag about? So as a result, we make up stuff, <laughs> standards by which we live, man-made standards. And this is our counter-offer to God. We say, I'm doing pretty good. I'm not so bad. So let me illustrate with the Sabbath. What time is it? Oh, my goodness. Wow. We could stop here, and then I'd be prepared for next week. I'm going to go quick. In the Lord's day, there were 1,521 things the rabbis said you can't do on the Sabbath. In the Lord's day, 1,521. They identified 39 categories of work you can't do. So you can't work on the Sabbath. 39 categories of work. You can't carry a burden on the Sabbath. So that's what they said. I quote, a burden is food. What's a burden? A burden is food equal in weight to a dried fig, milk enough for one swallow, honey enough to put upon a wound, ink enough to write two letters. Religious leaders got nothing else to do. They spent hours arguing about, about what you can, cannot do. On the, you know what they said? You can't take a bath on the Sabbath because the steam from the hot water might clean the floor, and that's a form of outlawed work. They said eggs laid on the Sabbath couldn't be eaten because the hens were working. (laughs) They said if a flea bit you on the Sabbath, you couldn't hit it because to do so would be hunting. And that is an activity forbidden. Let's not just make fun of my people. Hey, you people ain't so hot. Listen, in in later, in centuries ago, Gentile people drew up laws just as crazy about the Sabbath. For instance, in Scotland, in the 17th century, a man was brought to court for smiling on the Sabbath. See the deal? Don't you think this is so ironic? God gave the Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath. And man, in his pride, has made things like the Sabbath a burdensome, confusing morass of man-made laws as a ladder of good works, which we think we can climb step by step to, to, to raise ourselves up to the level of, of uh, the holiness of Almighty God, when in fact God gave us the Sabbath as a symbol. Here it is. After six days, God rested from his marvelous work of physical creation. He was finished forever. It was a completed work, and he rested. And... 
when God sent his son, his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus, to suffer and die on a cross in order to obtain our redemption and our salvation, then God rested from his marvelous work of spiritual redemption, and he invites us to enter into that rest as well. I'm telling you, Jesus offers a better rest than any other. And so I ask you, are you still trying to carry your intensely heavy burden of trying to be good enough to merit acceptance, favor, and a personal relationship with God? Stop. Enter into God's rest. Take Jesus as your Sabbath rest, as your Savior. Enter in. His is rest far better than any other. So we pray, Lord Jesus. A prayer of thanksgiving for what you have obtained for us. Rest indeed. Thank you that our motive, Lord Jesus, now for seeking to please you is not that we have to. Oh, no. It's much more a want to. And this, too, is an evidence that you have taken up your abode in our life. Now, for those who are not yet part of the we group, they're part of the they. Would you enable them to hear your voice, impressing upon them their need? They owe you a debt they cannot pay. They've sinned against you, a holy God. But there is a means of right standing which you can provide. It's through you, Lord Jesus, as a bridge. I pray for the one, the two, maybe the ten, I don't know, who still yet do not know you, that tonight would be the night. Today would be the time of salvation. They would cross over the bridge. Figuratively speaking, take your hand and let you join their hand to the Father's and forever enjoy eternal Sabbath rest. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.